Hi, welcome to True Creeps, where the stories are true and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore to the possibly plausible paranormal, to horrifying history, to tense and terrible true crime, and everything else that goes bump in the night. We're your hosts, Amanda, and I'm Lindsay, and we want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Happy spooky season. Are you excited for official spooky season? Yes. Yes, I am. Now now the world knows it's spooky season. Yeah. Now the world's on my level. Are they on your level or are they on your level like tomorrow on October 1st? I'd like to assume that everyone just uh, accepts that it's Halloween now. Like really accepts it's Halloween now. I mean, me too. Today we are going to talk about the Vallow and Daybell case updates. But before we do that, just a very quick one minute or less. How fucking excited are you about Hocus Pocus coming out today? Fucking stoked. I'm hyped. You're hyped. (laughs) If you haven't listened to our Hocus Pocus episode, it is a fun time. You should go check that out. Although the movie is kid friendly, the podcast isn't. (laughs) So correct. Correct. We dive into history. We talk about tropes. It's a fun time. Mm -hmm. And then next week we have our Potiversary episode because it will have been two years officially on October 2nd. But the episode comes out on the 7th. Yes, yes, yes. But what a time. So happy birthday to us, too. (laughs) (laughs) So many fun things. So many. So yeah, like she said, we are going to talk about some Vallow Daybell updates. Originally, we planned on doing just more spooky stuff to celebrate spooky season. But this case is like, hey, don't forget about me. Here's a million things going on. So we thought we'd fill you in. Yeah. And we figured we didn't want this to be a three hour update in November because there's some big stuff happening right now. Yeah. If you have found this and you have not been following the case a lot, but you're more interested now because you watched a new documentary that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, it might be worthwhile to go check out our previous episodes, the first of which is called Sinister Love. Yeah. And we break down a lot of information about the case. We also on our website, if you go to ongoing cases, there's a section where you can see we basically have a list of everyone involved in the case and who they are. And we have a timeline from the start to now. Yes. And I think both of those are some good visuals if you don't want to go through and listen to lots and lots of episodes. But yeah, I think it's a good start. And we go detailed into the case. Yes. And uh, we are recording this update today, which is September 24th. And this would have been Tylee's birthday. So I did see um, posts from some of our friends on social media. And then Colby did like a happy heavenly birthday post this morning. And it just made me really sad. It's just so fucking heartbreaking. I think that's sometimes that's something that people forget is that we're talking about case updates and we're talking about pre-trial things going on. We're going to touch on this a lot, but... The bottom line is that at the end of the day, we all want justice for JJ, Tylee, Charles, and Tammy. And it's easy to lose sight of that, I think, sometimes. But that's why we talk about this. That's why we cover this, because we all want justice for them. Yeah, it broke my heart. Yeah. So let's move into what's going on. So to start, we had some really upsetting charges that came down this last month. And the charges were against someone you really wouldn't think of when we're talking about Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. But her oldest son, Colby Ryan, 
was arrested on September 3rd on suspicion of sex crimes. And he was accused of two counts of domestic violence, sexual assault. And his bond was at $10,000. And he was booked into the Maricopa County Jail on September 4th. How disappointed were you? I was pretty fucking disappointed. I mean, also, I'm always disappointed when I fucking hear about any type of sexual assault. I feel like this is also just a good point to remember that sexual assault doesn't happen generally by strangers in an alley. It happens by people who you know. Yes. It happens when people don't understand consent and when consent isn't clear and when we don't teach people what pressure looks like. Right. And I think that that's it's an important conversation to have because it's not always just like some strange looking weirdo. Right. Exactly. It's people, you know, people who look kind, people who look nice. Like it can happen. Yeah. I just I feel like it's just worth saying and it fucking sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was more of like a wake up call. Like it could be anyone. Mm -hmm. And some of the comments, I will just say, disgusted me on social media this last month Mm -hmm. because of what occurred. And we're going to give you some of the details that we have. But for what occurred and people's response to it floored me. So the incident happened on August 31st, but the victim reported it to authorities on September 2nd. According to Justin Lem's Twitter, so our dear newscaster from Arizona, is Colby's estranged wife, Kelsey. They had been separated for a month and they were living in different places when it occurred. On their YouTube channel, Life with the Ryans, the last post is from about a month ago. And it says, hey, YouTube family, sorry there hasn't been any update on the morning show. We'll be postponing for a while. Also, we haven't been posting much. We love and appreciate you all, but things are rough right now. So if you can keep us in your prayers, we'd appreciate it. So they let everyone know that they're not making as much content as they used to. So the actual incident, what happened? Colby went to his wife's home and they watched TV and then later engaged in various consensual romantic contact. However, she did not want to proceed and told him to stop several times. Colby did not listen. The following morning, there was a conversation that took place and it was recorded. Colby agreed that he raped her during that conversation. Also, during an interview, after he was read his Miranda warning, officials say that he admitted to the alleged incidents. Colby appeared in court on September 6th and then something changed. Yeah, and the Maricopa County Attorney's Office filed a motion to dismiss the case without prejudice. And when it's without prejudice, it means that they can refile. It doesn't block any type of double jeopardy standards because double jeopardy is when you've gone through the trial and you were either convicted or acquitted. Uh-huh. So they can rebring it again. But it's interesting that they would do that. Now, there was a release document from the attorney's office, and the terms of his release are stipulated on the fact that he cannot initiate contact with either the arresting officers or his wife. Yeah, so we'll let you know if anything changes on that. He was released, and that's kind of where we're at now. As far as the posts that we had been seeing, the one that I referred to was just that people were floored that his wife had the ability to say no, I guess, which kind of upset me. (laughs) That is disgusting. I can't even imagine that being a thing that popped into my head when hearing that somebody was sexually assaulted. So the next thing we want to talk about is a new three-part docuseries that came out on Netflix on September 14th, and it's called Sins of Our Mother. And the story is told through Colby's eyes. Yeah, and I was surprised at how big this documentary got, right? I think it made it to number three on Netflix at one point. Yeah, I think so. And so what I think is fascinating is they released teasers, I want to think at the end of August, but I found it fascinating that they still released it after he was charged with sexual assault. 
because it's told through his eyes and therefore he has a very sympathetic light to him. Like you find yourself feeling just so heartbroken for him the entire time you're watching it, which is reasonable. It's fair. Like you can do terrible things and still be a person who has gone through terrible things. Both of those things can exist simultaneously. Yeah. But it's interesting to me that they released that. But so we both watched it. And like I said, like a minute ago, like I really think that heartbreaking is like the main word that I think about when I watch it is that like oftentimes well, I'll watch something where it's like infuriating or you're like you made this story of someone's weird beliefs. And so it doesn't feel as gut wrenching as it really is. And all I want to do is cry with the Woodcocks. I really do. However, they aren't the only family that lost someone. That's true. And so I think that it's an interesting perspective because we haven't seen, at least in my opinion, before this, there wasn't as much coverage of like the other side of the family that is going through pain here. And we'll talk more about like how it's a little bit different (laughs) in this situation in a bit. But I did think it was heartbreaking and I thought it was a few inaccuracies. But overall, I thought it was actually pretty good. Yeah, I think I felt the same way as you as far as like there's a few things that they said. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's not right. But overall, it was well done. I liked that they kept it in like a timeline fashion because, of course, like we got the information at various times. But I liked how they fished through text messages and things that were going on in some of the other lives while the case was playing out. So I thought overall, well done, but just from a different yeah, point of view, I guess. I also, now that I'm thinking about it more, there is a, what I would just say, palpable absence of her niece, Melanie, in it. Oh, yeah. And we're going to talk about her last today. But I just think that's a good point to mention is that they don't talk about her really at all, right? I think they mention her once about her apartment, obviously, because she lived literally next door to Lori in Idaho. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they mention her wedding. Yeah. So there were some inconsistencies from information that we knew before. And the first part was how many siblings Lori had slash has. Because when Janice was talking about her kids, she lists Alex as the oldest, then Adam, then Lori, and then her youngest as Summer. But she had another child. Yeah, it was very interesting that they did not mention Stacy's name. So Lori Vallow did have a, another sister named Stacy Lynn Cox Cope. And she was older than Lori, but she died in 1998, I want to say. So it was just like weird to erase her. Yeah, that's a weird thing to not mention. Yeah. And the fact that it's Melanie Pulowski's mother, who we've mentioned before, you know, when we've talked about like her father and things like that, but just very strange. I thought it was bizarre that she was oddly not mentioned, but I think that's why she wasn't mentioned. I think that's why Stacy wasn't mentioned, because then they could pull Melanie into it. You know, a little bit more. It's a little bit more easy. Maybe. And so another inconsistency that we noticed was when they were talking about Alex and Zulema getting married and Melanie and Ian getting married, they said that they were each other's witnesses, but that's not true. When Melanie and Ian were getting married, Alex was their witness. However, when Alex and Zulema were getting married, there was a security guard (laughs) that was their witness. Right. And we know this because we've seen that marriage certificate. Yeah, and it's a very strange one, too, by the way, because Alex signs it as Alex Pastenis. So he took Zuleba's last name. He's getting away from that family. Did you get away from the family? Yeah. But it was very interesting that, yeah, he was theirs. So Ian and Melanie got married on November 30th of 2019. And then Alex and Zulema had gotten married the day before on the 29th. Interesting. And after they got married and it was all over the place, 
I actually had to go to Vegas for something. <laughs> so I stopped at both of the wedding chapels because it was when the kids were still missing. And I was curious, like, were their weddings weird at all? Like, what happened during their weddings? Why was a random security guard the witness? So I went to Alex's uh, wedding chapel first, which was Chapel of Love. And I talked to a few people there. They weren't like fully open. And I went back once and I talked to one of the security guards. It wasn't Keisha, their witness. But I left my number and was like, can you have Keisha call me? And he's like, yeah, I'll take your information. He took it, but she never gave me a call. When I went to where Melanie and Ian got married, which was Lucky Little Chapel, they were super welcoming and they knew that the kids were missing, like the ladies that worked up front. Mm -hmm. And I was actually going to Idaho after that trip. So I'm like, I'm going to Idaho soon. I just want to know, like, how how did their wedding go? And they actually took me back and like showed me where they got married at this little place. And they're like, it seemed relatively normal. There was no like oddities that they could remember. I'm also sure they probably have like a ton of weddings. So probably it would have to be pretty bizarre for them to remember it, right? Well, they remember them only because they saw what was happening in the news. Oh, no, yeah, that's fair. They didn't really stand out to them. It was more like, oh, my gosh, like we're on the news now because this happened. Yeah. But they were very sweet people. They let me walk around, talk to me for a little while. But yeah, nothing out of the ordinary. So another thing that came up during the documentary was that Tylee wasn't in Colby and Kelsey's formal wedding photos. Because she was on a ski trip. Hmm. And there's some inconsistencies there, too, at least from what I understood, because I've seen various places for the last, I don't know, year or so that Tylee was at some sort of church thing. And now I'm hearing ski trip. And then I've also heard rumors that she was at the wedding, but just wasn't present for the photos. So I don't really know <laughs> what what actually happened there. That's bizarre. And yeah, and what's interesting, too, is they talk about Colby not knowing that she wasn't there until they went to go take photos. Right. And then that's when he found out that she wasn't there. And I'm like, that's kind of bizarre to me because you would think that like before, I don't know, it actually depends on when the photos are being taken, right? Because are they being taken before the ceremony or after? It looked like it was after ceremony photos, but right, that's just a guess. Exactly. Yeah. And I've even seen like some people have gone through old photos. I don't know if they had some relation to the family in some sense, but they're like, wait a minute, wasn't this Tylee here? Also, interesting note, Colby did an interview with Justin Lum back in February of 2020, and he mentions that Tylee was just late. I truly don't know. I don't think it really makes the biggest difference other than it could have been because Lori didn't really have nice feelings towards Kelsey. Hmm. And perhaps that was kind of like a way to get at her. I don't know. That would be so gross if it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they do actually go into a little bit of like Lori's feelings toward Kelsey. And it was just kind of sad. But yeah, just like an interesting event to dissect, especially if there's been other things said prior to this documentary and from the person who actually got married, too. So just very weird. Mm -hmm. Throughout the documentary, too, something that caught everyone by surprise is that Janice is in it again. And Janice is Lori Vallow's mother. And if we remember while the kids were missing, Janice went on with Summer and told everyone she would never hurt those kids. They're safe. I talked to JJ. That interview still haunts me. Mm -hmm. Today, though, Janice regrets saying that the kids were safe during that interview. And like, it makes sense, right? Like, it's unimaginable to think that your daughter could have a hand in killing your grandchildren. So like, I, I can understand that as like, 
you know, a family member doing something that terrible is unimaginable. But also like you went on and you're like, no, I know. I know that they're safe. And I talked to JJ and that's still like a little haunting. You know, I don't know that I would do that. Like I love my family dearly and I believe great things about them. But if a child went missing, I would not be lying. Yeah, I wouldn't be lying. Because you just don't know what fucking happened. Like, it doesn't mean that they hurt their kid, right? It could be that something terrible happened. But I wouldn't assume that the kid was fine unless I saw them with my own eyes. In person. Right, right. And in her head, she thought she had talked to JJ. Apparently, she had not. I think it's weird, though, too, that she did go on and not really expect Lori to tell her where they were. You know, like... If someone in my family's like, oh, don't worry about it. They're safe. I'd be like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay. But where? You know, like I wouldn't just let up Mm -hmm. and then go tell the world. I do get, though, that like it is something that your brain doesn't wrap around. So like, do I forgive her or have a lot of sympathy for her? I honestly don't. I feel kind of like horrible for saying that. But like, I still don't buy everything she says. Like, I feel like she almost played a role in it in a sense of helping that cover up slightly. And then also remember, we talked about this in one of our episodes is Adam came into town, Lori's brother, and was kind of trying to help Charles, right? The weekend that Charles died. And their mother kind of shunned him, but believed Lori at the time. And it's like, that that kind of sucks. You're believing one kid over another. And then look what happened. I don't know. I mean, no, that's fair. So there was a documentary that came out in 2020, and it was called Doomsday, the Missing Children. And this, too, was like a docuseries type of like format. And it followed Larry and Kay Woodcock, who were JJ's biological grandparents. And it follows them trying to find out what happens. Oh, I'm trying not to cry when I say it. And they're in the room when, when they find out. And the sound that comes from, like, both of them, right? Like, their reactions are so genuine and so heartbreaking. and like when you see that scene, there's no one seeing it, right? Like, it's like... Oh, yeah. It haunts you. As, like, a human, you can't unsee that grief. Yeah. And I've never lost anyone in my life who was a child. But, like, as much as I could feel what they were feeling, I could feel what they were feeling, you know? Oh, yeah. And they were the grandparents of JJ, right? Mm -hmm. And that is not how Janice acts when she talks about the fact that her teenage granddaughter was murdered. And whether or not that she felt like JJ was her grandchild, I don't know. Yeah. Honestly, I've never heard her mention JJ in a loving way like that. And maybe I've just missed it. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen and I'm not saying she doesn't love him or didn't love him. But the way that they grieve is so very different. Yes, yeah, it is. And everyone grieves differently, right? Like it's different on each person and what we've already gone through can really impact that. And also like when I'm going through something hard, I am not the type of person who talks about it in public. That's not for me. I'm not like a public feeling sharer Mm -hmm. when it's something that's to me very personal, like grief. Yeah. So it could be that. It could be, but but this whole documentary was about losing her grandchildren. Right. And you might not know, if you didn't know otherwise, that that's the relation that she had. Agreed. There's just such a difference and that it doesn't seem like it clicks to her that they're gone for some reason. At least to me. Like, she doesn't read like she had her granddaughter taken from her in an unimaginable and terrible fucking way. I'm like, do you still not know how they found her remains? Do you not know that? Because, like, you should be so mad because either, one, your child had something to do with it, 
or two, she was so reckless with her children's lives that this happened. Right. Like, wouldn't you be mad at your kid for letting this happen? Yeah, she doesn't show much. I don't know if remorse is the right word, but like secondhand remorse, secondhand remorse. Yeah, that's good. She doesn't show that your kid did a terrible fucking thing. Mm -mm. No, she's kind of like taken herself out of the situation and now she's speaking about it. She does come very detached. Yeah, maybe she hasn't dealt with it yet. Or maybe, you know, during the trial, that's when she's going to have those feelings. I don't know. But you're right. It doesn't show in this documentary. And anytime, even like I saw an interview with Larry this week and I tear up like every time. I can't even think about Larry without tearing up. Like I can't. I can't even say his name. I'm crying again. Yeah, like I'm watching it in the car because picking up your children from school, if you do that, you get it. You have nothing to do. You wait forever. But I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, my God, Larry. And he's talking about something we're going to talk about later about cameras. But it's like you can still feel his sadness through the camera (laughs) and her. She's just like, matter of fact, this is what happened. It was not good. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Anyways. okay, we're giving her too much time. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck Janice. Another uh, person (laughs) that came up on the documentary was Julie Rowe. And it's strange to me that she was brought in almost as like a truth teller during this documentary because of the crowds and what who she rolled with at the time. I wouldn't put her in that spot. But she talks about being a spiritual medium and she goes into how Chad was off, which is really saying something because Julie Rowe is Julie Rowe. Julie also talks about some of the talks with Chad that she had. And how he said his plan can't move forward until the spouses are dead. It's not good. It's just wild to me that, you know, like now, again, she's a truth teller in this. And she doesn't take some of that accountability of go, I I really should have said something during that time. She's just like, oh, it was Chad. No blame on her. Like, she's not the one that did it. I don't think at least. She's not culpable. But like every single person who interacted with Laurie and Chad and wasn't like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah is culpable and the degrees to which you're culpable vary because if you heard it you know every day for however long it's different than once every month but if you heard it and didn't go what the fuck are you talking about then you didn't do that yeah and they're saying that their spouses need to be dead why i wish the you know interviewer would have been like and why didn't you speak up there i want to know from her perspective was she fearful of her life or something she never says anything like that but like why didn't you And it just angers me to my core. I mean, that's very fair. So the documentary also got a hold of some of their old podcast clips. And years ago, when the kids were still missing, I was able to find a few online, but I haven't been able to really find a lot of them lately. But they had some of the clips from where Melanie Gibb and Lori were interviewing Chad on their podcast. When you listen to it, the way in which Lori interacts with Chad in this. Cringy. It's cringy, but the tone in her voice is like wonder and all. And I don't think I've ever been so angry to hear love in someone's voice in my entire life. Like I was just like, ew, ew, just get a fucking divorce like normal people, you psychopaths. (laughs) Yes. But so we mentioned it before, but we really see Colby's perspective in this documentary because it's through his eyes. Right. And so it gives more color to the relationships he had with people and kind of where he was with things. Uh 
one of the things he talks about is how he and Tylee had discussed how Lori was acting a little off when she started going on and on about her new beliefs. And I mean, I could definitely see like maybe holding your tongue with your mom because you're like, what the fuck is she going on about? Right. Like maybe this is a phase. Maybe this is a moment, especially if you've got, you know, years and years of interactions with this person. And then she has this like sudden weirdness. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can see a pause there. Other people, not so much. But adult family members who know that she has kids, yes, you should be more concerned. Anywho, he also talked about the fact that Lori had told him that Charles had cheated on her. So then when Charles starts acting like panicked and very alarmed, he thinks that that's because Charles got caught cheating and that he's just trying to do damage control. And so that's why Colby stops talking to him. And you can hear in Colby's voice, like the hurt that he did because he was like, I trusted my mom. Yeah. She was my mom and she had been a good mom up until now. So I, I trusted when she said that because like, why wouldn't I? And it's not like this was just some random guy either, right? Like Colby also talks about like how much he loved Charles. So it's not just some random person that like he barely knows or barely has a relationship with. He said that Charles took the time to be his father and then like how much that meant to him too, especially because like Laurie's previous husband... Joseph wasn't Colby's father. And he said that he had been sexually assaulted by Joseph. So the fact that he had a good relationship with Charles meant so much to him. And so you can hear it in his voice. And he talked about how he started to get suspicious when he couldn't get a hold of Tylee. And there's audio of him talking to Lori about Tylee and JJ missing. And Colby's talking about missing his siblings. Yeah. And Lori says she misses them too. Which in my head, I'm like, I can understand this is like a really intense conversation. So you're not like picking up on red flags because like you're not thinking that your mom who's been a good mom could do this. But like she's saying that she misses them is a little bit of a red flag in retrospect. That conversation, I don't know about you. I was so upset and angry that she's like, yeah, bud, like I get it. I miss him too. And I'm like, I want to punch her in the throat. No, you don't. You can't. Yeah. Like how fucking dare you? You don't get that privilege to miss them. You don't get it. Yeah. I was definitely infuriating. And I also think it speaks volumes to how clearly she was like lost in this bizarre new belief structure because she kind of sounds sincere in it, which is nauseating. So I was watching it on my computer and my husband was like doing something in our office behind me and was like, wasn't that that woman who they think killed her kids? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, what the fuck? Yeah. Like he like stopped from him and he's like, why would she say that? Like, he wasn't even paying attention, but his brain was like, I'm sorry, what? I watched it in the living room and same thing. Mike was in the background doing stuff. And by the uh, second episode, he was sitting next to me, just like wide eyed watching it. And I was like, see, this is interesting. This is insane. Yeah. There's a reason why we all find this case so captivating. And it's because like when you see a person who seemed like they were good do something so fucking horrendous, it's alarming. Yeah. Also, I think part of it is that there was a point when everyone had hope that JJ and Tylee were alive, and that's when the case gained notoriety. And so when the children were found, it then became like a collective cultural just hunger for justice for them. Yeah. So another person that appears in this documentary is Kelsey herself. And we always knew that there was some sort of tension between her and Lori, but this actually gives Kelsey's side of it from her perspective, which I thought was good. And Kelsey talks about being suspicious of what happened to Charles immediately. So first off, Lori sent a text about it and said that he had a heart attack to Colby. And she's like, that's suspicious. 
Yeah, like, why would you text that? Yeah, very weird. I mean, she's a horrible human. Uh, Lori, of course. And then she was even more suspicious when Colby actually, like, went to go see Lori and then is told that, oh, Charles was shot. So it's like, wait a minute, like, he was shot. He had a heart attack. Like, what actually happened? I can't imagine going through that and, like, someone that you trust tells you one thing and then they're like, oh, wait, never mind, this happened. And then you just having to, like, deal with that, I guess. Yeah. Not having control. She also started to look into Lori because she knew something was up. And that's when Kelsey found her podcasts. So she's like, uh, things are getting weird. She also found Charles's emails from when he reached out and that, you know, of course, they had ignored him because they thought about the cheating thing. Kelsey saw an email that showed the light in the dark spirits. And we've discussed this extensively in one of our past episodes. But how frightening would that be? seeing your name on there as being a dark spirit i would be like oh fuck well also okay so two things first i would be like oh fuck but then secondly knowing how that she wasn't a huge fan of me and i had like a dark number then seeing that her child had a number that conveyed more darkness than i had i would probably be a little bit alarmed especially the children are already missing i would be like that's not good because i think tyler she was a three and tyler was a four yeah, Kelsey was a three dark and Tylee was a 4.1 dark. Yeah. So I think that I in that moment will be like, OK, well, this confirms that I should be really fucking concerned. Oh, yeah. But you know what? Interestingly, Charles on that document was a three light. But remember, they said, oh, he turned into a zombie. So yeah, fucking nuts. I also think that like Chad had to layer on things little by little by little. Yeah. So as I brought up before, I thought the way that the docuseries was made, like in chronological order, and how when we found out the information, it was at various times. So in our heads, like the order, we understood it, but we didn't really see it in an order, if that makes sense, because we'd find text messages a year later from when it happened or, you know, a couple years later during all of this unfolding. So it does a very good job of piecing the information together without it being too overwhelming. Yeah. They also showed pieces of the body cam footage from the day of Charles's murder, but they put them together in a better way to tell the story. So you don't have to sit there and sit through each individual officer's cam. It was like this piece, this piece, this piece. Yeah. And it's so easy to get lost in the sauce with the amount of information in this case. Because like even just the amount of footage of various events, you're like, okay, so what happened here and when and how? And like, Amanda, would you say that we have more information on this case than any case that we've covered ever? Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And I mean, like, we talked about the Gilbert Police Department in Arizona. They had like, what, a 5,000 page document dump? Yeah. I want to think it was 5,000. It could have been less, but it was like a single thousand amount of documents. And to me, that blew my mind. And I want you to like tuck that context into your head because it'll be relevant for something we discuss later. But it being formatted so that you saw like footage, text messages, audio recordings, like other things all at the same time, it just kind of made it a little bit easier to understand. As we've been covering this case, like I would have like a case outline in my head of how things happened. And then I'll be like, okay, and then we're going to add color here. The room was blue. And I've been like adding detail to like sections of it as we went and having this kind of in my head, I felt like I had what this did. Yeah. But like being able to explain the case to someone and not overwhelm them is really difficult. <laughs> they did a really good job of really like showing you their intense board with red string and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
Have you done that, by the way? In conversation, brought up this case and then panic when you're like, well, where do I start? This is not the case that I bring up in conversation (laughs) for that reason, because I'm like, you don't have the time. I don't have the time. Like, I've had this case brought up to me in conversation where I was like, look, do I mention in every conversation that I can that I have a podcast? Yes, I fucking do. I have a small business on the back of my merchandising. I have like, do you like spooky things? Listen to this podcast, right? Any fucking chance to bring it up. And another maker that I was talking to was like, have you heard of like the Lori Vallow case? And I was like, let me tell you what I know. You're like, let's go into this room. <laughs> Step into my closet portal. Yeah, I was like, you want to talk about Vallow? You, you're going to show up in form to me? And then like, she looked at me like I was insane because she had a casual amount of information and I had an uncasual amount of information to share and discuss. And she's like, I haven't looked at that yet. Like, was clearly like, hmm, okay. Maybe we talk less to the to the lady who knows too much about this. <laughs> and I was like, that's very fair. But now when I see her, she's like, did you see this update in the case? So she like knows that she's about to get like a podcast in person. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. So back to the documentary. When I say the body cam footage of Charles, there's several of them. And some people don't know this, that before he was murdered and, you know, you see that unfortunate one of where they walk into the house and his body's just laying there. There are some of him prior to that begging police for help. And they had a few of those there. And of course, they cut them. So they're a lot shorter because they're long videos. But anytime I see those videos and you see the panic in his eyes and you see him literally begging for help to anyone that, you know, authority that should be able to help him. And without knowing the context of what's happening, I think they kind of wrote him off as like he was kind of the crazy one and that he didn't know what was going on because Lori plays it so well, too. Like when they speak to her, she comes off as just a normal woman. She is so charming in that, right? Like she's just like easy and charming and is like so cavalier about all of it. And it's like in a situation when you have someone panicking and someone cool and collected. Yeah. Oftentimes people are just like, oh, whoever's cool is collected when it turns out that like that it's not the case. He was just having like a big reaction to a big thing that was happening. Yeah. And this is a lesson that sometimes big things have require big feelings and that you don't write people off for having big feelings. I mean, yeah. But in those videos, too, of course, it's hard to look into that situation now. But I think he did a pretty good job of keeping his cool, but still like showing the passion in his face and his voice of how her actions are harming their family. And just like the Larry videos, watching the Charles videos makes me incredibly sad. What this poor man went through in the weeks, months leading up to this. Well, yeah, and because it's not as though they were having problems. They had like a good life together for a long time. And then all of a sudden, like everything's fucking different. Like, could you imagine like your life is one way and then all of a sudden everything doesn't make sense? Yeah. I would imagine that would be terrifying, especially with children in the mix. Absolutely. Yeah. That This poor guy. So like we mentioned, too, the text messages are like interwoven into this docuseries within the timeline. And it helps you to paint this like horrific series of events in a brighter light. An example of it is when they're talking about Charles's death and then there's audio recordings and texts from Lori about Charles's life insurance policy. And like when you're seeing all of the uh, events play out, but then seeing what's happening in the background at the same time, it's just like, why wasn't there red flags? Like why not even flags? Just like there should have been like blinking lights on her. Yeah. 
for how ridiculous this whole situation was. The docuseries does end with Colby having a small memorial for Charles, Tylee, and JJ in Hawaii with his family. And you do feel for him there where you're like, you lost pretty much everyone you cared about, right? Like your mom, she's behind bars for life, might even be put to death, really. You lost your your dad. Mm Mm-hmm. Then he lost his siblings that he had a really good relationship with. Yeah. And he cared deeply for them. And you're like, oh. And then, of course, the days leading up to it, you're like, oh, my gosh, what did you do this for? So a lot of feelings while watching this documentary. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're going to talk about the opposite of feelings. We're going to talk about filings. And (laughs) Myth is laughing at me quietly, but (laughs) laughing at me. Lindsay, like, her feelings are like, filings. Yeah, I'm like, let's <laughs> talk about filings because I find them very interesting. Again, if this is your first time listening to us, are all filings sexy? No, they're not. But the procedural goo that leads up to a trial is what ensures justice. And taking every little tiny thing incredibly serious is how we build a structure of justice. We do things with justice in mind. Yes. And it's justice for people who died. That's number one. Justice for the people who died. It is. And so we're going to talk about all of the filings since our last update. They're not in chronological order. Just to start very quickly, in our last update, we talked about how Lori's counsel, Archibald, had filed two different filings because he wanted the case remanded back to the grand jury. And he said that for two separate reasons. The first was he talked about the way in which charges were lumped together and how they were asked questions. And then the second had to do with the death penalty. Because in Idaho, basically, the jury is given a laundry list of quote-unquote aggravating factors. And if any of those aggravating factors are found to be present, then the death penalty can be the sentence. Then the person can be sentenced to death, right? And so with those factors, Archibald, Laurie's attorney, basically said, like, we have to prove that these aggravating factors exist before we talk about the fact of whether they could vote on them after the trial. And basically, Judge Boyce said no for both of these things. And so it was denied. So their case isn't going back to the grand jury. We're not going to get too much into that because it's a lot of big procedural stew, but that is the gist of it. So moving to our next section, which is the sealing and unsealing of documents. And so sealing a document basically means that it's not available to the public. We can't see it. Just like closing a hearing means that only counsel, defendants, and the judge, as well as, you know, relevant court reporting people who are like in the stenographer and such and bailiff can be in the room. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, there were additional filings that were sealed since our last update in August. And then, as you'll recall, retired attorney Lori Hellis, who was not barred in Idaho, from what I understand, and who also has signed a book deal to write about these cases, by the way, that's an important note to remember, is attempting to intervene in the case to block the court from continuing to seal filings and orders. After her first round of filings, and we talked about this last month, Judge Boyce denied her pleadings. Basically, because intervening is not a remedy that is permissible in court actions, only civil actions. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's that, correct? And what she files is a motion to intervene, and that's how she comes in with it. Interesting. Interesting. And just a note, when you're talking about a motion to intervene in a criminal case, could you imagine if anybody who felt like they were interested in a case could file a motion to intervene? It would be incredibly difficult because accomplices who are going to have future trials that might be impacted this might file, victims, victims' families, properties that are associated with the crime. Like there's a lot of things like it's kind of like an endless list of like if you think of like who is impacted that might want to bring into it. Like today we're going to talk about media specifically. 
But like, it feels like an endless list of people who could claim that they have some interest in a case, right? Right. So you can only intervene in civil cases, not criminal cases. And we talk about justice for the victims, right? Like, that's what we want. But that is not how the case is, though, right? It's not Tammy, JJ, and Tylee versus Lori Vallow, Daybell, and Chad Daybell, right? It's the state against Lori and Chad. Right, right. And that's because the state is bringing the action against those that broke its laws. So it's not on behalf of the victims. And it's important to kind of frame it that way because the state has an interest in keeping criminals off of the street because that's one of the reasons why most people sometimes respect the government. Mm -hmm. But okay, Judge Boyce basically said, you can't intervene. This is a criminal case. Which I see fair, like absolutely fair. (laughs) What are you doing? It feels fair. And from what I understand, the crux of her argument last time was that she was basically saying you can't do everything behind closed doors because that's one of the ways in which we hold the justice system accountable is by keeping things not sealed, by keeping everything not closed. Right now from a third party, that's they're like, we want to keep things above board. Remember that third party portion, right? So Judge Boyce denies her. So then she files more pleadings. And basically what she's saying in these is that the filings that they have don't contain sensitive information that would further prejudice potential jurors against Lori or Chad. And that rather they're comprised of information that has misconduct of law enforcement and court officers. And then she gives a list of over 100 documents that she wants to be unsealed. Where do those suspicions even come from on her end, though? I don't know. Okay. (laughs) Because if they're sealed, how does she know that? Right? Exactly. That's my thoughts is like, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And it's kind of like it's the filings that have to do with like prosecutorial misconduct or some of the ones that she wants to look at. And then so she's like going, right? She wrote a letter to Justice Stephen Gregory, Mueller of the Idaho Supreme Court. And just as a note, he is the chief justice of the Idaho Supreme Court, which means he's like the most judges judge of the Idaho Supreme Court. Okay. Yes. Yes. And this is one of the things that she said. In fact, it appears Judge Boyce has engaged in systematic cover-up of the possible misconduct of prosecutors, law enforcement himself, and his judicial colleague. And she wrote to him because he chairs the media committee on the Idaho Supreme Court, which, by the way, is just default. Whoever is the chief justice in Idaho is the chair for that. And so I was like, oh. And then apparently, like, in her letter, she's like, there is or there was, like, a media conflicts division in that committee and i want this to be brought to them if you have a valid concern that is a good venue right like if you have that idea so do you know what i did a person who isn't getting a book deal i was like perhaps (laughs) i'll go look at their website what if i just took a little a little look-see to see how you would do this okay okay Mm -hmm. so i went on there and there is a comprehensive media guide it's like over 30 pages and includes a section about complaints against judges. And it says that there is an avenue for complaints against them. And it's the Idaho Judicial Council. And that's made up of three citizens, two attorneys, one district judge, and the chief justice, which is Justice Mueller. And then it gives you a literal URL that you can go to to fill out a complaint and send it to them. It's pretty clear, right? Yeah, I think so. so on the Idaho Supreme Court's website, they have a media guide. And in that media guide... They explain to you how to file a grievance and where to find that form. I wonder why she didn't do that. I mean, can you think of any reason why somebody who is going to publish a book on a case would want to insert themselves in their case and have themselves in all the filings and report it on? Like, I can't. Can you think of any reason why somebody might do that? Would her name perhaps be within some of those documents then? Hmm. Hmm. Wouldn't that be like a really just great way of advertising your book that you're going to write? Would think so. Yeah. 
Hmm. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. And maddening. And <laughs> maddening. In that media guide, right, it has a section on conflicts, right? And it seems like most of the time what people have grievances about are whether hearings are closed. Because it's those hearings where justice is being administered, right? Where you're going to see arguments, where you're going to see how the judge is acting, right? Yes, correct. Because when a judge, like generally there's like a hearing and oral arguments. Sometimes there's just filings in an order. But a lot of times there's a hearing on motions that have been submitted. And then in that hearing, either one, the judge will say like, I'm going to issue a decision later, or they will give you the decision and say an order will follow. If more hearings are closed, it's harder to see what's going on. But sealed filings aren't that. That's different. You know, I'd agree. Yeah, I don't know. But I would just say a good rule of thumb on whether we should all be concerned about whether there is a miscarriage of justice occurring is are the parties to the actual case battling over whether something should be closed or not closed, sealed or unsealed? If both the defense and the state are on board on the same page, then that means that the defense doesn't think that it is in their best interest for everyone to know, or the attorney is incompetent, A or B, Mark Means is gone. Which happens. Mark Means <laughs> is gone. We feel pretty good about Archibald now, right? Like we feel pretty safe with him, but incompetent or they agree that it will make people turn against their client and perhaps taint the jury pool. But also if the state is saying like we agree, then likely they know that what is in those filings, what will be talked about in those hearings will impact the defendant's right to a fair trial. Because otherwise, the state would be like, yeah, we want everyone to know what's going on here. So just an interesting note that the only person who seems to be mad about those filings being sealed has a monetary interest. Mm -hmm. It's kind of unfortunate, too. I am just so fucking mad about that because, like, we come to this as people who are empathetic and sympathetic and interested in a case. But what happens in this case is not the justice of someone who I loved and knew and cared about and watched grow up. Right. Like I care on that level. We're, we're outsiders looking in. Right. Yeah. We're an outsider looking in. And clearly we care about the victims. Yes. We care about them, but we didn't know them and love them. Right. They seemed like wonderful people and we would have loved them should we have known them. But we did not. Right. And so if you are not in that position, the idea that you would get in the way of this speaks volumes to who you are in my opinion. Yeah. And I feel like it would be a little different if she didn't have that book deal. Maybe we wouldn't be as like, yes, what do you have to gain from this? But in this, it's like kind of on the wall, like you're going to make money. Yeah. She writes in her first filing. I'm writing a book on this. If I can't be there and I can't read everything, how will I know what's happening? Yeah. won't. And it's like, this isn't about you. You're not in the need to know. Yeah. Like it would be different if Kay and Larry, and we'll talk about them in a minute, but like if they were like, huh, this seems suspicious. I'm like, all right, what'd you find, Kay? Yeah. And also she files these filings on her own behalf as a pro se person for a person that's not barred in that state. And like one of the things that you're taught in law school is that you don't represent yourself. That's like day one, lesson one rule. Don't do that. Yeah. Especially if you're not going to follow the court's mechanisms for doing so. Sorry. It's fine. Yeah. Like like attorney hat Lindsay is like, ugh, yikes. Yikes. No, 
everyone is talking about how they're like, yeah, like she's helping us. And I'm like, guys, who's she helping? Is she helping anyone but herself? I'm sorry. It just makes me so mad because I'm like, people who are interested in true crimes, it gives them a bad name. It does. This is what people talk about when they talk about problematic true crime podcasts or like, I hate the word fan, but like people who are interested in the case or things like that. This is the shit that gives us a bad fucking name is when you get in the way of the justice system. Right, right. No, everyone's upset that they're not able to look in in it. And I'm like, look, all I care about is that there is justice that comes down, right? Like the end of the day, that's all I actually care about. I don't need to know every single little thing happening. Would I like to? Of course I would. But if I can't, in order for it to be a fair and just trial, then sure. Exactly. I don't know. Some of the comments I've seen lately have been like, I think I need to step away from some of the groups a little bit. As I'm reading them about like Colby and around this and they're like, yeah, she's standing up for us. And I'm like, she is not standing up for you. She's standing up for her book deal. I think that Hellas is in one of these groups and they like her and they follow her YouTube page. And and she puts out like an email blast and she talks about this and she does a good job of explaining like the legal things that are going on to lay people. And that is all great and good. But being a relatively good source of information does not mean that you have justice at heart. It means that you are good at that thing. Yeah. And I would question anyone's motives who intervenes in a case like this saying, no, but my book deal. Yeah, that's fair. And I think anybody else should, too. I think that's fair. So let's move away from that to consumptive testing. And consumptive testing of DNA found on evidence found on Chad's property. In the affidavit filed on behalf of Chad, Dr. Greg Hampikayan, who is an expert in DNA analysis and a professor at Boise State University, argues that Chad's DNA would likely be on the shovel because he owned it. Which, okay, yeah. He also said he wanted to oversee the laboratory testing and be kept apprised of any results. Interesting. Okay. That feels like a distinction to bring up at trial, but now, then, say it all the time if you need to. Yeah. Judge Boyce entered an order for the consumptive DNA testing to be completed and that if there is any leftover DNA in the samples, that the parties will reconvene on how to handle it, which this seems pretty normal, right? Yeah. So let's talk about the discovery. There's some contention on discovery as well. Lori's counsel, Archibald, asked the state to provide three things. One, communications between potential prosecutorial witnesses and the prosecution law enforcement, specifically on witnesses from Arizona, Texas, Utah. Maybe that's Tammy's family. Yeah. The state countered that they turned over what they have to turn over. Everything else is information that they are not entitled to. For the next two types of discovery requested, the state conceded to supply it. All information about immunity agreements that was offered or accepted. Interesting. It's interesting they don't have it already. Yeah, right? So the state previously provided a list of 104 witnesses, but they didn't include contact information. So Archibald wants that. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess that's fair. Yeah. So Lori's counsel is asking the court to order the state to prepare a bill of particulars. So the purpose of a bill of particulars is to, quote, furnish to the defendants further information respecting the charge stated in the indictment when necessary to the preparation of the defense and to avoid prejudicial surprise at trial. Basically, it helps explain how the prosecution is pairing Lori's alleged actions with the crime she's being charged with. Interesting. Makes sense to me. Yeah. This is not something that 
always happens, though. And the court is at the discretion to decide whether to order the state to prepare the bill of particulars or to not bother doing it. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I've never heard of it before. I was like, what is this? I've just never heard of it. Yeah. In his pleading, Archibald states that the indictment is general and has many alternate theories. So it doesn't nail down which specific acts are paired with what Lori is being charged with. And I feel like that it's true when we read it, right? Because we've read indictments before for other cases and we've read probable cause charging documents before. And that's often where we'll get a lot of the meat on cases that we cover is we'll look at these like introductory filings and they'll be like, the person did this on this day. And that is proof that they did this element of the crime. Right, right. Like, haven't we seen that a whole bunch? And when you think back, you're like, no, they tell you kind of like a case summary and then they tell you the charges. It's just a different way of writing. It didn't even occur to me that it was like, honestly, a little bit vague. It is. And that's a little scary. Mm hmm. And then also this next part is wild. So there are five terabytes of electronic material. This is a ridiculous amount. It's an insane amount. Generally, one terabyte equals 75 million pages. That's wild. Blink, blink. We thought that we had a lot when they remember earlier when I was like, keep that like single digit thousand number in your head. We were like, wow, so many documents. 75 million pages. Can you imagine having to sift through that? I mean, and that's not all, right? Like, (laughs) so that would mean that there was 375 million pages of discovery so far. And like, oh. That is an oppressive amount of discovery. That's insane. Like, my mind cannot wrap around that. Well, I don't understand how they would get all that done by January. I'll be very interested to see if this case actually starts in January. There's just no way. There's no way it's going to start by then. That's a lot. That's a lot of time to sift through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this isn't including what the defense said they don't have, which is statements made by some of the key players. Mm -hmm. Archibald is basically saying that there's so much information that it's really hard to figure out what the state is saying is proof of the crime. And like, honestly, I, I don't think he's wrong there. And it's not bad to say that. Like, we want everything to be a very strong, situated thing, right? Like we want everything to be black and white so that when the trial does happen, it goes smoothly. Yeah. And like we've talked about it many a time, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. Trials are not supposed to be shocking. No one on either side should be surprised about what the other person is going to argue. The only people that should be surprised are people who aren't a part of the case and the jury. Right. And when they say prejudicial surprise at trial, what they mean is having no clue what the state's case is, right? Like, yeah. And that feels reasonable. You should have an idea generally of what the state is saying you did and how you did the crime that they're accusing you of. Yes. Agreed. So let's move on to a very intense conversation about media coverage. And so we have had the interesting ability, I say, as a person who is viewing this case unfold, but also technically a part of the media as a podcaster right, is that we've had a lot of insight into this case as it's happened, probably more so than any other case that I am aware of. Agreed. And that has happened at the detriment of a fair trial at every step of the way, right? The more your average person is privy to, the more a potential juror is privy to, which means that the second they walk in, they already have some preconceived notions about Laurie and Chad. I don't give a fuck. I mean, like, fuck them both, right? I understand that. Like, on my deepest level, yes. But wanting justice, Lindsay says, fair trial means failed appeals. And that means either they're locked away forever or they're put to death. And we can only get those results if everything is done by the book now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Do you agree with that statement? A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a bit about these filings and how we got to what a lot of people are mad about. Mm, Yeah, this has been a week. And honestly, a lot of media representatives are very angry about this. So Laurie's counsel filed a motion to clarify media in the courtroom. And in this filing, he asks the court to either ban audio and visual recording from the rest of the hearings or to severely limit it. And in the filing, he even says typically media will have a camera. They'll have like one in the juror box. And then they'll have one in the front row of the gallery. Right, where the people sit. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And I will say, like, when you think of those two positions, those are not disruptive to the court, right? They're not disruptive to what's happening and they're not disruptive to anybody seeing anything. It's just kind of like if you were sitting in the room, which you would be able to see. Right. Which means that it is a way of the public being present when they could not otherwise be. Yes. But in this filing, Lori's counsel alleged that Court TV, and it says and or, so basically some member of the media, set up a remote camera a few feet in front of the table where Lori was sitting with defense counsel. And they also put a microphone on the table where the defendant was sitting. And they talk about how the camera multiple times zoomed in on Lori, although there were attorneys who were giving arguments. So what's happening in the case is that people are making arguments, talking to the judge. But what that camera is focused on is what Lori's doing and what she looks like and how she's reacting. And it's only looking at this camera is just for her. It's just zooming in on her face at various times. It also zoomed on when Lori was talking to her counsel. Not great because there's privilege between them, right? So you shouldn't be able to zoom in. You shouldn't be able to read lips. Right. Or microphone. Or microphones. And they don't know whether there were conversations that were recorded with that microphone that was on the table. Yikes. And from the way that the camera was set up and the way that it was run throughout the August 16th hearing, it was clear that the entire intent of that film was to watch Laurie and to see what she was doing and how she was reacting. There were other cameras present, but this one was just pointed at her. That was the only reason it was there. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of that is because that's what gets the most views, right? Especially if it's court TV. What gets most views and the most gossip when one of these hearings happens is what Lori and Chad are doing and what their faces look like, what her makeup is, right? We talked about how mad Mm -hmm. we were when everyone was like, she was wearing lipstick. Her hair looked like this. Her hair looked dyed. And I'm like, I don't give a shit what she looks like. Like, I do care that she has no feelings, right? Like, she just looks numb to everything or that Chad looks like a frog half the time. Or a thumb. Or a thumb, yes. But this isn't what we should really be focusing on, right? We should be focusing on, like, is everything going to plan? Is everything being unfolded in the proper timely fashion is, you know, all of the, that sort of things. We're, we're seeking justice for people that have died. I don't give a shit what color lipstick Lori is wearing. And that's what a lot of people have been focusing on. Yeah. It's also not the purpose of cameras in the courtroom. Yeah, we're not innocent of it. Like we, we have we brought it up and like joked. Absolutely. But like that shouldn't be the focus. And it makes me sad that that's what they chose to do because that's what's going to get them the most views. Also, though, like I say it so many times, but I'll say it again, is that you can't judge someone's outward appearance all the time on like what is going on internally. Right. And like in this particular situation, like fuck Flory Vallow. Right. Yeah. But what if this wasn't her? What if we set this precedent and we one day have somebody who is an innocent person, right? Or how about this? How about this? What if, I don't know, for example, there's a person and they're dressed in all black clothing. They have all black hair and they have piercings, but they're taken out, but you can see them, right? And they're standing there and they're dressed as like professionally as they can, but like they still kind of look a little goth. Maybe like they're into like darker kind of stuff, right? 
alternative. And all we see is this person who looks like they're into dark and spooky things, right? And all you see on the news is that this person was into worshiping Satan. And that this person likely thinks that like bad things should happen to certain types of people and this and that and this and that. And it is pervasive and you can't get away from it. And you as a juror, you show up on day one and you already think to yourself, that person is a Satanist. And then they show you evidence that that person is a Satanist, right? But you show up with that bias that you already have. And you have negative feelings towards Satanism that was fed to you. Yeah, it's fed to you. And then you can't even think clearly because you've been kind of like programmed, right, to think this certain way about this person. And it kind of has nothing to do with what actually happened. I'm saying here, like, fuck Lori Vallow here, right? But we all know that court cases can impact other things and they can impact how future court cases work. So like, if it can happen here, it can happen in other ones. Yeah. And like, that's where I'm like, ugh. No, like my my like knee jerk reaction is like that is not the purpose of the media in the courtroom to dissect the defendant. It's simply not. It's there to make sure that all of the people who are there doing a job are doing those jobs correctly. It is not to dissect a defendant. But anywho, let's get back to this. So camera in front of Laurie, just a few feet. It has a zoom capability. It has the capability to zoom in and see if Laurie were to write a note to her counsel or vice versa, or if co-counsel was to write to another And that is concerning, right? Yeah. And generally, if it appears that any audio or visual recording is interfering with a proper administration of justice, it's on the court to prevent that. And that's one of the reasons that U.S. federal courts don't allow cameras in courtrooms. So this is what he files. So this is what Archibald files, right? Either less recording or no recording. Not surprisingly at all, a laundry list of media outlets hired an attorney, his name's Stephen Wright, who secured them the ability to submit a filing on behalf of his clients, as well as attend a hearing on the media presence clarification and to present an oral argument. Now, in their filing, they argue that the broadcast equipment wasn't hidden, and they refer to a declaration of Grace Wong. And so she is a senior director of courtroom coverage for Court TV, and she is incredibly seasoned. They talk about how she has years of experience and that Court TV was responsible for quote unquote pool coverage. And from what we understand, pool coverage, basically, it means that this media outlet has the main coverage and everyone else can tap into their feeds. And Court TV is, they're like, seasoned veterans at doing pool coverage. They were responsible for the pool coverage for Minnesota Eschauvin, for the murder of George Floyd, and then more recently, the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial. So they handled it for that as well. And they said that the placement of the cameras and the microphones had been approved by the trial court administrator, and that the devices were so small that they wouldn't be distractive or disruptive, but they also weren't so small that, like, you couldn't see them, right? It wasn't like a pen tip. Right, they're not hidden. Yeah, they weren't hiding them, right? And they say there were microphones at the bench and at the tables where the attorneys would be speaking. Like, there already were microphones there, right? So it's not strange that there were microphones And then so a general microphone, if they had it in the room, right, would pick up every sound and every sound could be kind of zoned in on a little bit. Right. Like if you know audio stuff as well, I guess. But the way that this audio setup worked is that they had a technician and their one job was basically everyone would be on mute unless it was their turn to speak. Otherwise, their microphone would be turned off. It would be muted, if you will. So they said. And if it was muted, then that means it wasn't recording, although it was a recording device at a table that could do that. It wasn't recording. So, so far, this sounds like, oh, okay. perhaps 
a reach from Archibald. A little bit. Do you feel like after hearing that, you're like, okay, like they could see these microphones. They knew they were there. They could see the camera. They knew it was there, right? Most of it. The muting thing, I'm like, meh, I don't know. It's easier to just mute it later than to sit there and mute, unmute, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly, right? Okay. So after Wright filing on behalf of different media companies, the state files their pleading, which concurs with the defense's motion regarding the limitation of recording devices in court. And I was actually, I was a little surprised by this. So they kind of gave a little bit more color on the microphones and how they are typically set up. So basically, there's microphones on each table and the attorneys themselves can mute them. So while they're like, I believe it can turn them on and off and they're responsible for doing that. So like they could be talking and mid-statement, mute it, ask a question of their co-counsel, come right back. Like they're the one who's going to continue talking, but it turns off, right? They are in charge of it. So they are in charge of securing privilege or for securing like what is an appropriate conversation to be amplified and what is not. And that's also the purpose of those microphones is to amplify what they're saying so everyone can hear. Unbeknownst to counsel, the other microphone was taped to the standard microphone. So it was a smaller microphone taped to the normal one. And at that August 16th hearing, prosecution didn't even know it was there either. The only reason they found out right before the hearing started was because a Fremont County law enforcement officer was like, hey, look, there's a microphone taped to that. Because they didn't see it at first either. Right. And like, why would you be inspecting? Like, you would just assume like, all right, I'm going into a court of law. Everything should be as it should. Well, yes, exactly. You would not expect there to be listening devices there, right? No. And so what the state says is that even if the microphones were not purposefully hidden, they were of a size, color, and location that they weren't noticeable until someone had pointed it out to them. And that those microphones that had been taped on were simply microphones. They didn't have a mute option. They couldn't control what it did or did not do. And before the hearing, they were like, oh, we're not going to listen to your conversations. Like, it's fine. If it's something that's privileged, like, we're not going to record it. We're not going to broadcast that information. It's not even going to be recorded. But there was the technological capacity for that to happen. Right. Like they were basically going off of their like promise. Pinky swear. Yeah. And counsel also wasn't told whether the purpose of the microphone was to amplify sound or to run consistently throughout the day to capture all communications. So like it's completely possible that that little microphone, the purpose of it was like somebody was going to have like a little headset in and they were going to be taking intense notes. Right. Like that would be one thing versus we are recording this. Yeah. He also pointed out that the camera that was pointed towards Lori with the sole purpose of just recording her all day is highly unusual. That's not something you usually see. And that there is the right of public to access courts and trials, but it does not include the right to have completely unfettered use of audio and visual equipment, which makes sense, right? Like you can't just like put a camera wherever you please. Right. I think that's fair. Yeah. And that applicable statutes provide that the presiding judge is the person who gets to decide whether there is audio or visual recording in the case, especially specifically when that coverage may impact the administration of justice and that it can be revoked at any time. And that when the judge does that, there's a lot of things that you can appeal but not that, which I thought was interesting. Now, that doesn't mean that, like, if there's an impact to the case, like, say, Judge Boyce was like, record whatever you want, right? Lori could still bring that up later and say, hey, this impacted the the jury X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. It can be brought up as, like, a reason for an issue happening, but not that in and of itself, like, not that decision. Now, so he also points out that this didn't occur to me, right? So say the court was like, look, in my head, I'm like, they also point out that if the court did permit the audio and visual recording by the media, they can't regulate the subsequent use of those recordings. 
even if those recordings would impact one or more parties' right to a fair trial. So, for example, he allows audio recording of those devices that are taped to the microphone. They do record privileged conversations. He cannot order those media companies to not broadcast them because once they are done, they are done. Yikes. Isn't that insane? That is. When it comes to censorship of the media by the government, it is very narrow. It is difficult to get that. So it's better to restrict what they have access to than to try to contain it. That makes sense. Yeah. And so he was even like, look, when you say, oh, we're only recording the person who's talking right now. So they have a microphone at their table and taped to the side of it is a microphone and they're talking. It's not like co-counsel and the defendant are getting up and leaving. Yeah. And if the prosecution is talking, it's not as though both of their co-counsel attorneys are going to talk to each other. It's possible that they would be like whispering back and forth on the next point or something like that. So those recordings can pick up co-counsel talking and it can also pick up co-counsel talking to a defendant. And he's like, that's not okay." And he points out this other point, which I think is very important. The presence of microphones placed by Court TV has a chilling effect on the parties that bars proper communication during the argument. So say this camera is on Lori all the time and it can zoom in and read her lips or say Lori's like someone is testifying and she's like she has like an emotional response and kind of jolts back and whispers something to her counsel. She might not do that. She might not talk to her counsel when she needs to. Yeah. Because there's a camera pointed in her face or because she knows that somebody else might be able to hear her or because she knows that somebody could read her lips, read the note, all the things, right? Like it stops you from being able to get your defense or it stops prosecution from being able to, you know, come up with a better strategy on the fly and be able to like argue things and have conversations, right? Like it chills everybody. So Judge Boyce entered an order revoking all authorization for recording of any kind going forward. So in his order, Order, Judge Boyce says there is an inordinate focus on the defendant zooming onto her face throughout the hearing, regardless of who is speaking or what is happening. He said that he personally refrains from viewing any coverage of the case, but it's difficult to do because it's everywhere, especially where he lives there. So like it's on local news, it's on national news, it's on the radio, it's everywhere. And he said, quote, the court will not risk the loss of seated jurors who may intentionally or inadvertently review the very trial proceeding they are sworn to decide when those jurors must make the decision upon only evidence presented at trial. Talked about it before, but we'll talk about it just briefly again. Jury instruction is you can only consider the evidence that is presented at trial. You can't take everything else that's in the media. So the more that's in the media, the more that you're going to look at. So say you have a body language expert on the news, right, which they do yeah. all the time, right, talking. You can't consider what that body language expert says if they're not in trial. But if they have somebody, a camera pointed at Laurie going, oh, she blinked twice, that means she's lying. So I forgot about this, but material witnesses are excluded from the trial so that they're not tainted while they're testifying. Because otherwise they would see what other people said and go like, yeah, what he said, right? Yeah. And if the trial everyone can see it, then it kind of defeats the purpose of that very necessary practice. And this didn't occur to me because I'm like, oh, you know, being an attorney means that like you're going to have to speak in front of a crowd, right? Like, okay, sure. But like it does add to the pressure for everyone in the courtroom to be like dressed the best and talk the best and never misspeak and never make a mistake because there's so much pressure and that it's not even just like what you say or how you say it. It's your appearance. And then that's going to be dissected by people forever without anyone's consent, which it was just fair. And 
So he revoked all coverage and he said, we're not doing any camera footage, but you can apply again for audio recordings, which I think is interesting because I'm like, okay, that's different. And that kind of solves the problems. Because, like, I feel like when people are like, oh, he revoked coverage, I'm like, he basically said, you just have to reapply. Like, I'm not going to just give it out willy-nilly anymore. Especially because the way that they did it before technically fit all of his courtroom rules. So clearly he needs to re-review those applications again and say, like, okay, well, how do you want to do this? Why do you want to do this? Where are you going to put it? What's it going to pick up? Is it going to have this function? Is it not? And the only audio that is currently acceptable is the microphones that are already is an existing part of the court. That's fair. Yeah. I get it. I get why I've seen many people very, very, very angry about it. And I just want everyone to remember that we are all interested. We all want to know what's going on and we all have those feelings and that's fine. But what we should be really focused on is does Tylee, JJ, Tammy and Charles and Charles not really part of this one. Unfortunately, he'll be with the Arizona one if they need to do that, but that they get justice and we have to take our feelings out of it and just focus on their feelings, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I feel like the last thing that we all need to see is more of Lori Vallow's fucking face. Also, like, okay, so one, yes, justice. It's what we're there for. We're there for a fair trial so we can get fucking terrible and terribly awful, wonderful punishments for people who did fucking awful things. Yeah? Yes. But secondly, is that Lori likes attention. She likes people looking at her. And from what the rumors say, she's said that. Yes. And that's disgusting. And also, like, we knew that she was, like, a person who was generally like, look at me, even before all of this happened. So why would we give her the satisfaction of continuing to stare at her face? Mm-hmm. Realistically, we should be looking at it as a fuck you to Lori, right? Like she can't play the camera. Yeah, like that's my biggest thing. And I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. I mean, how many times do you hear it with serial killers? Especially because people always say like, oh, serial killers, like one of the things they want is infamy, right? Yes. Why are we giving her the satisfaction of infamy? Yeah, even like, I don't know if you guys have seen, I mean, she looks gorgeous at them, but the pictures after some of these hearings lately, where she's like getting in the car and she's just smiling and beaming and you're like, ew, no. It's because she's acting like these are paparazzi and she's famous. Yes. And I hate it. I cringe every time. I'm like, I hate that she gets this. And it's like, no, I want I want her mugshot. And that's what I want to see. I mean, I think that's fair. I feel like people say media circus all the time. But like, it is. It is that right now. And I find it like we talk about the case. We talk about like how it works, how it functions and what happened and what continues to happen and all of these things. Right. And we're a part of a loud group of people talking about a case. Right. Yeah. And I purposely don't listen to a ton of other podcasts that talk about a lot of the things that we do, because what if I like hear something and like subconsciously I say something similar, you know? Right, right. But like, I'm hoping that other podcasts, I'm hoping that there are some independent news places who are thinking like, this is not in the best interest of justice. Agreed. And like, Amanda, do we make literally any money off of this podcast or do we just break even? break even right now i'd love to make money off of this podcast but we break even we have no vested interest when it comes to whether or not there are recording devices of any kind in the courtroom and frankly if there are audio recording devices right if he's like oh those microphones that are used to amplify are also going to be used to record that is sufficient for us to all know whether what happened was just 
Right, because that's what the jurors get to hear, too. They don't see those side conversations. They can't hear them. So, like, that's fair. They can see Lori's face, and they likely will look at her when she's doing things, right? For sure, but they're not going to hear the little things, or they're not going to see the note passed. Like, they can't see it from where they're situated. Yeah, and they're also not going to see a person then taking that, like, way she blinked or way she looked to the side or the sneeze that she did or the cough that she did and how a body language expert dissects that because, like, they won't have that footage. It'll just be what's in their head. And I think that that's a good thing. Now, all that being said, as people who are on the outside, from what I understand, the Woodcocks do not agree and they want this televised. Yeah, and that's that's the interview I saw this week with Larry. Yeah. And so I think it is fair to want a public shaming of the person who did this to the person you love. And we respect the Woodcocks like so fucking immensely. And like, I totally get that. I can understand like as the person who is a part of it, you get to have that opinion. You absolutely do. But as a person who isn't seeking justice for a loved one, whose opinion truly doesn't matter at the end of the day. Yeah, I think I agree with that. The less we can interfere with justice... I'm like, hey, no skin off of my back, right? Like, I want that to be done. And like, maybe it's that he wants to make sure that so many times when we see cases, who's pushing for justice? Is it police? Is it prosecution? No, it's the families. It's the families making sure shit gets done. And so they have had to push. They had to push to make sure that somebody even looked for JJ. Like, what, what would have happened if they didn't do a welfare check? Right. How long would it have been until someone realized that something happened? Yes. Or how many other people's kids would have been killed because they were looped up in this? Or how many other people's spouses would have been killed because this was all, you know, everybody was so caught up in it. Like, they had to push. So, like, I would also understand feeling like I needed to keep, like, pushing to make sure that, like, nobody forgot about what happened to the person who I love. Right. And maybe you can see these signs if someone you love is starting to act this way. Yeah. I have seen, too, that they are considering, like, the people that live in Rexburg having to go to Ada County Mm -hmm. and how that's a very long drive for them and not everyone will be able to go sit at that trial and so like i see it from that perspective too like some people that weren't like family members or you know loved ones but maybe had a role in the case in other ways that also wants to see justice served i'm thinking of like the owners of some of the i don't know places they rented or the storage person just the people like that that kind of played a role but didn't so much that still want to see justice served i do feel for them too So I'm hoping or I'm guessing that it's going to be some audio is what we'll be able to get. But I'm not like outraged. I'm a little sad. Like, I'm going to admit I'm a little sad. I want to see. But if I can't for justice to be served, I understand. Yeah. And so interestingly, that you bring up people who are residents of Fremont and Madison County, that Judge Boyce does point out that like this does mean they've lost the ability to, to attend in person. Without it being a great convenience, especially because it's an eight. And so they plan to provide, quote, enhanced access for Fremont and Madison County residents by providing designated seating at trial. And they're going to figure that out later. But I think that's important to note because I was thinking earlier because Amanda and I had toyed around with the idea of like perhaps going to Idaho for the trial. And I think what that means is that they are probably going to focus on people who are residents of those counties. Yeah. Actually being able to be present in the courtroom over random people from other places or media like and i think that makes sense i respect it yeah so big feelings this week (laughs) big feelings so many feelings with the filings and i said that the opposite of feelings was filings we lie sometimes they're together (laughs) well there's one that i was kind of like 
finally she goes down. I'll take what I can get. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there were some filings with Melanie. So Melanie Palowski, Lori's niece. And a lot of people, including myself, have a lot of feelings towards what she might have been a part of during this whole situation. Or at least like not maybe playing a role in it, but knowing what happened and just keeping quiet. And I've always suspected her. I've never really sided with her, even when she had her crazy interview with uh, her new husband, Ian. I'm pretty sure in our first episode, you were like, and she knows something. Like as we first talked about she her. She does. She fucking does. I mm, I hate that she lived next door and had no fucking clue where her cousins were. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. It doesn't sit well with me. It's so close. And I, I can post some pictures of like how close they lived because I did go to Idaho and I went to their fucking doorsteps. Mm-hmm. Not when they lived there, but I wanted to understand how close everyone was. I wanted to understand how close Melanie was. I wanted to understand how close Alex was. Yeah. And you know, I, I don't know. I just can't get over it. But anyway, so let's talk about her filings. She was married to Brandon Boudreaux before her current husband, Ian, and someone tried to kill Brandon as the case was unfolding. Melanie was recently charged with computer tampering. I'm happy, right? Like, it's not what I want exactly, but I'm like, she's going down too. Yeah. So the alleged event took place on March 2nd of 2020, and her ex-husband, Brandon Boudreaux, was the victim. I've seen some speculation online that people are like, did she get a hold of one of Lori's computers or Chad's? And I was like, no, you would hear so much more if it was that. Uh, yeah, it would be a little more juicy than this. But Melanie had used a copy of a $12,000 check that had been deposited into Brandon's account as part of their custody hearing. As part of their divorce decree, Melanie was supposed to remove herself from Brandon's business account within 60 days after their former home had been sold, which like makes sense to me, right? I've worked in the banking industry years ago, and that that makes sense. We'd get that often. Their home was sold on October 3rd of 2019, but their account was allegedly accessed by Melanie on March 2nd, 2020. So like, that's a while between. Yeah. The investigation began in November of 2021, and a detective from Mesa, Arizona, interviewed Melanie's attorney, Garrett Smith. Smith said that Melanie had been removed from the account, but she had logged in because the login info was not changed. But like, if you were removed from an account, why would you log into it? This next part is like, just so fucking ridiculous. Like, why would you say this? And why would you say that your client said this? <laughs> so per the police report, quote, Garrett told me it is not Melanie's fault that Brandon was dumb and did not change the login information until three days after Melanie accessed the online account. Why would you log in with someone else's login to an account you're not supposed to have access to? Why would you even <laughs> try? Why would you put that on Brandon that you did something wrong? Exactly. So <laughs> Smith also told the police that Melanie logged into the account because she believed that Brandon owed her money. Log into your own account and figure that out. Right. Her next hearing is set for September 26th. So just a couple days before we put this out there. So if there are updates, of course, we will update you soon. Penalty for this charge ranges from probation and a year in jail or to a prison sentence of two to almost nine years in prison. It's a big difference. Big difference. Also, by the way, that seems like an incredibly long time to be in prison for logging onto an account and just like printing off a picture. Like, I'm not saying she didn't break the law, but I'm like the idea that you could get nine years in prison for like printing off a check and like doing nothing else. Aside from invading his privacy. You feel me? 
It is. It is. But like, we'll take what we can get, though. You know what I mean? We'll take what we can get. Also, they said get off that account. And so that means do not access it. So like, yeah, if that hadn't happened, maybe I'd be like, eh, OK, but like they literally told her not to. And then she's like, well, I'm gonna. He's dumb. You know, I don't know. But I am happy that she's paying for something. I'm not happy that she hasn't paid for anything else yet. But I'm wondering what will be coming out Mm -hmm. during the trial. Like, how much did she actually know? And where was she at certain times? Yeah, I want to know it, too. And then just a quick update. Unfortunately, on September 26th, the charge against Melanie was dismissed. If there is anything that comes up, we will update you. So there's a lot. There's a lot that happened over these last couple months. We're very excited for spooky season. We're going to do a lot of spooky content. And if more happens with the Vallow case, we'll probably discuss it in November. Yeah. And also, we're going to put it in our show notes, but we're adding a new section to our website. It's a place where you can submit questions about the case for us to talk about in our upcoming episodes. We generally kind of like look around the internet and see people are talking about. But if you have particular questions, that's a really good place to put them. And we'll include them in our next episode or at the very least put them on social media and have like an answer there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then also we have our contest going on right now. Head over to truecreeps.com slash contest to see all of the information about it. You can win a pretty sweet, spooky basket. Yeah. Just as a note after our episode, but before this was released, Chad's attorney filed another motion to sever. There's also a bunch of other filings. We'll cover those on our next case update. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. And as always, a special thank you to our patrons who support us via Patreon. Please see the link in our show notes to learn more about how you, yes you, can begin to haunt the dump, guard vortexes, or even become a scorching Sasquatch. Also in our show notes, you can find the link to our website, more information on our sources, our social media handles, and our merch store. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps and or ghosts. I beg of you.